Beyond Well with Sheila Hamilton. This is a program for people who want to learn more about our interior lives. And during COVID, we've been paying particular attention to some of the changes that have occurred in people's behavior because of the stress and the isolation of quarantine. One of those is alcohol use. As stay-at-home orders began in some states as a mitigation strategy for coronavirus, uh, Nielsen reported a 59% increase in national sales of alcohol for the week ending March 21st. So the CDC went in and talked to people about their alcohol behavior. And Dr. Polo, what we're seeing is an increase now of about 60% of Americans admitting to more alcohol use and at least 34% of those saying that they're troubled by their alcohol use. This has got to be very concerning for mental health professionals. Yes, it is very concerning. Uh, and drug use as well, too. We could have easily predicted this. In times of catastrophe, people do resort like hurricanes, earthquakes. Uh, 9-11 is another example. Under those circumstances of crisis, with COVID, it's likely a significant problem with substance use disorders prior to this pandemic. Um, and the pandemic has created a tremendous amount of uncertainty, a tremendous amount of anxiety, increasing levels of stress. And one of the ways that unfortunately sometimes people cope with that is they turn to either alcohol use or some kind of drug use. And, and so what, what, what we're beginning to see early on is, sure enough, sales are up, use is up. And in fact, a lot of studies are demonstrating that uh, incidence of overdose is also going up as well, too. Okay, so my first question has to do with how do you know if you have a problem? Because, you know, your wife or your husband might tell you, look, I'm not comfortable with how much you're drinking. But if your work isn't um, being impacted, if you still manage to be present and hopeful for your children, how does one tell if they have a problem with alcohol? This is a tough question to answer because, of course, everybody has their own perception in terms of what they believe is problematic use or not problematic use, you know, and oftentimes in mental health, when we ask folks, do they think they're having a problem with alcohol, they will say no. But then when you ask them specifically, well, tell me what you actually do use, that's where you can get a little concerned that people's own, you know, judgment of themselves is is not quite on. In general, you know, if you're starting to drink on a daily basis, if you're finding that you're drinking by yourself, if you're finding that that kind of becomes your go-to thought when you're feeling stressed and overwhelmed, gee, I'm going to have a beer, gee, I'm going to mm -hmm. have a drink, then you're on that beginning steps towards the possibility of becoming addicted. And remember that there are many people that do drink, but they don't have an addiction. And there are some folks that that can get addicted quicker than others. So there's no one standard rule in terms of how much you have to use before you will get addicted. The CDC's guidelines suggested that more than five drinks a day is problematic. But, you know, with COVID, I hear some people say that cocktail hour begins at three and, you know, it doesn't end until you get the kids down. And so in the past, I had heard guidance that it is most problematic when you begin to see relationships and your ability to work change. Yes. Is that something yes. that you still, you'd still abide by? Oh, oh, definitely. And, um, you know, keep in mind that sometimes folks are able to increase alcohol use and be in that red zone where they're approaching a problem, but yet they're still functioning well. They're still able to go to work. They're still able to hide it. In general, when folks are reaching that point of problematic use, the first thing where they, be, or the first area, I should say, where they begin to have troubles is in relationships. And obviously, because at work we're involved in relationships, it can sometimes come out in a work environment, but more often than not, it's going to come out in a, in a home environment where you're around somebody 
a lot. And one of the things about COVID is that because folks are being recommended, decrease your social connectedness, stay home if at all possible. My recommendation would be certainly if you have a spouse or somebody that's living with you that is concerned about your drinking, then you should be concerned too. Mm, that's a great, that's a great rule of thumb if you're hearing it from the people who love you most, right? Exactly. So I have been very confused about how if someone actually did want to access professional help during COVID, how they would get it. Because as we know, most people need to go into rehab to make sure that they're assisted during withdrawals. How is it working right now? Yeah, that's a great question. And in fact, it's a, it's a significant dilemma for us because remember that for folks that are going to need alcohol treatment or for folks that are already in recovery, a key component that will help them will be that supportive environment, being around other people, making sure that you're staying away from whatever those triggers are that might promote use. Oftentimes, isolation, being alone, being under stress, having anxiety, those are all the right triggers that will push somebody who's in recovery to either relapse or somebody that's not been drinking excessively to start drinking excessively. So what do you do then if you think you're in one of these two buckets? You know, my first advice would be to to call your primary care doc and explain, hey, I'm a little worried and get a recommendation. There are many organizations that are providing telehealth services, you know, either through a telephone or through a video link up on your laptop or your mobile platform or whatever for substance abuse treatment Mm. to include folks that maybe need um, medical assisted treatment, you know, they need MAT type medications as well too. So that that whole area is expanding to provide services. But I have to admit, it can still be hard. Yeah. So my first suggestion is, you know, reach out to a primary care doctor and, and, and get a referral to how you can get that taken care of. There are also a tremendous number of helplines, you know, you can call and see what services are available in each particular community. Some communities have more services available than than Mm -hmm. others. And of course, there will be some times where somebody might have a concern and it's still recommended that they be seen, but at least then you have a way of planning it. X clinic at X time, we're going to evaluate, see what's going on and develop a treatment plan. One of the um, things that I've always heard from people who end up being successful in kicking either drugs or alcohol is that they actually had to interrupt the the pattern that they were in. They had to get away from their home. They had to get away from their friends. They had to get away from starting to open the wine when they cook. You know, the things that sort of trigger the behavior is what that little pause gave them. So short of that, Dr. Polo, do you have any suggestions for how people can moderate their behavior on their own? So what you're alluding to is this idea of how do you take charge of your recovery and yet holding yourself accountable by making connections with other people that kind of help you. Um, You know, typically when we have an individual that is in recovery, uh, let's say they're involved in, let's say they're married with a spouse who is very supportive and you say to the spouse and you say to your, your patient, Hey, you know, Alcohol has got to come out of the house. Can't be there. Yeah. You get both of them to agree and the, the alcohol comes out of the house. It's, it's no longer there as that temptation. You've got that support from the, from the wife who is supportive, okay? Or the, or the husband or, or the significant other. Now, let's say you have an individual, though, that has the exact same problem. They're involved with either a spouse or a significant other who themselves is having difficulties and not willing to do that. Saying, oh, I don't think it's a big deal. You know, yeah. I'm not going to give up just because you... So that person is now going to be at risk. And we will often sit down with that individual and say, hey, listen, what's more important to you? Your ability to recover and live in a better way? Or Mm. is this relationship maybe part of the problem? Problem. Is this relationship even one of the triggers? Wow. 
So during this COVID period, um, I think what's most important is how do you help people think about holding themselves accountable? Hey, do I need to have a a Zoom check-in with a friend on a daily basis? Do I need to be able to have a list of folks that I can reach out to and quickly talk with? Mm -hmm. Is there an app that I can download onto my phone that's going to help me think about being in recovery? Because part of the challenge with folks that are addicted is everyone has their own set of triggers. There's no question that stress is one of those triggers. And being alone kind of gives you that ability to want to take a risk. And so oftentimes um, when folks are fresh into treatment, we'll recommend, for example, that they're attending group meetings or AA meetings as a way of top of mind, focusing on recovery, holding themselves accountable, using that support network. And of course, the pandemic is making it very hard because we're encouraging everybody to stay home and be socially right. distant and so forth. It's fascinating to me that now we have the combination of a pandemic coming up with the holidays that are almost always stressful for people who may be already kind of stressed economically. I'm just wondering if you could provide a little salve for people's souls yeah. right now, because yeah. I think if I've ever really detected in social media, just an awful lot of hurting, it's um, this year. It definitely yeah. is this year. Yeah. The best advice that, that I think I could give for folks is to, first of all, spend some time actually sitting down and reflecting on, hey, look, what is my reality that's happening around me right now? What are the things that I can control that will help me get through this period? So let me tell you what I mean by that. We're in the middle of a pandemic. Despite what you mean in your particular area, this pandemic is real. Uh, wearing masks does help. And being socially distant is recommended. Okay? That, that's just the bottom line from a brutally medical perspective. The holidays do tend to be a time that can kind of create some difficulty for folks. At the same time that many folks love gathering and being close to family, and that's a time to kind of connect and so forth, which, oh, by the way, for some folks, that's stressful too. Rather than waiting for it to, quote, happen, Christmas arrives and you're not doing all those things that you normally expect, it's much better to think ahead and say, okay, this is going to be different. What can I plan that will help me get through it? So that you kind of almost set yourself up to have a reasonable expectation. So, so I, I use myself as an example. My wife and I, for years now, have traveled the week after Christmas to go visit family. We're both doctors, so we tend to work during the week of Christmas just because, you know, we find it's easier to work that week and then take our week afterwards. Well, this year we're not going anywhere. And we kind of realize it's going to be hard on us. So, so what we have done is we've decided we're still going to take the week off. We're not traveling anywhere because it's not recommended and it's no matter where we go, the restaurants aren't going to be open anyway, right. <laughs> but we're actually planning a couple of activities locally that we can do just her and I together. It's not going to be the same, mm. but we're actually planning it so that it still kind of feels like it's in our control. And at the mm. same time, because we're planning it, I kind of already know what to expect, which means yeah. I also know hey, I'm not going to get what I normally get, which is a sunny beach somewhere, you know, south of the Caribbean. <laughs> so so, so I, I think part of it is accepting reality, planning for it, and then making sure that you follow through so that your expectations are at least met. And that can be very hard. I also just want to um, have a shout out for all of the new peer support networks that I'm seeing popping up on social media, I will tell you, I think some of the advice that I hear and the compassion that I hear from the people who have been through what others are suffering through right now is really good medicine. 
really good medicine. Yeah, I would really have to agree. There's there's nothing that can be more supportive than knowing you're not alone. When it comes to mental health, when it comes to substance abuse, we already have our own sense of feeling defective. We already have our own sense of stigma that kind of prevents us wanting to kind of talk about it or maybe reach out to others. And yet when you do and you find somebody else that really can understand, it can sometimes be very helpful because it makes you feel like it's not just me. Yeah. I'm not the only one. I'm not alone. And so I agree with you. There have been all kinds of support type groups that have opened up online, Mm -hmm. which also take advantage of the fact that you can connect now with people that maybe you couldn't because they weren't in your community. That's right. Yeah. So it can almost be like a global community as you go through this. So Dr. Polo, how do you detangle um, alcohol and substance abuse from a mental illness? Okay. Um, good question. And and first of all, I, I would highlight two things. First of all, um, when you look at only the substance abuse disorders, th- there are very there are many discrete categories. So, so for example, if you're using, I'm just going to use one as an example. If you're using cocaine and you meet all the right criteria, you'll have a cocaine use disorder. If on the other hand, the drug that you're using is an opiate, then you'll have opiate use disorder. The first thing that I find is that many folks that are using one drug are usually using several. It's rare that I find somebody that says, I'm only using one drug because oftentimes they have a preference for a drug that they like when it comes to the illicit substances, but they are pretty risky folks that will sometimes take others if that just happens to be what's available. Wow. Is that also true with alcohol? It's also true with alcohol. So very often folks will come in with a quote drug problem and and sure enough, they will agree that they have a drug problem. And then when you talk about alcohol, they say, oh, that's different. Oh, what do you mean that's different? Oh, wow. Well, you know, I've always, you know, had six beers a day. I I just want to stop cocaine. So the first thing I'm trying to say is that drug use, alcohol use is very pervasive. It's very hard to say people have just distinctly one. Okay. The heart of your question though, is how do you distinguish folks that are having drug or substance use alcohol type problems versus those that are having more of what we call the mental health, emotional difficulties, depression, right. et cetera, so on and so forth. And very often they're, they're existent at the same time when you're feeling stressed or overwhelmed or depressed. And so sometimes I'll have people that very clearly started with some emotional challenges that led to substance use. Mm -hmm. I'll also have people where it's the exact reverse. You know, maybe they started, you know, drinking before, you know, it, it got a little out of control. Mm -hmm. Uh, They become addicted. Now it's impacting their relationships. It's impacting their work. And now they're depressed because life is not going well. You know, very often in the past, it's, there's been this kind of almost professional question. Well, do you treat one? Do you treat the other? Right. I believe you need to treat both of the same. Both. Yeah. Yeah. And do you have difficulty, especially if you have to have an assisted withdrawal with balancing the medications that you might give to help the depression and anxiety with those drugs that are given to help with an assisted withdrawal? There is a school of thought that some people kind of subscribe to, which is, if you've got a substance use disorder, you should follow a, a treatment plan that is essentially going to take you off all medications, all drugs that are that are psychoactive, because that is the primary problem. In other words, the you're going to go cold turkey, or you're going to be, or you're going to taper down to to taking nothing, and that being sober is the goal. Now, I don't necessarily agree with that completely. I, I, I do think that there are times when folks' addiction is severe enough that 
it is reasonable to consider, is there a medication that we can use that's going to help get you through that risky period of relapse that's mm. going to kind of keep you off that edge of withdrawal, but that drug in and of itself is not going to just replace the one you're getting off of. Right. Okay, so we often yeah. talk about MAT, uh, medication-assisted treatment. It assists the real treatment. The treatment is the counseling. It's the comprehensive approach to saying, I have a use disorder that I want to I want to break free from. And in the interim, because of the dangers of some of the medications, particularly opiates, MAT medications like Suboxone can be quite helpful to help get people through that period. Yeah. And then when they have the emotional ability to handle what's going on, when they've been able to re-examine their lives, when they've been able to reorganize their social networks and kind of set themselves up for success, then you're going to be at a better point where you can say, okay, it's it's time for us to now consider withdrawing the suboxone as well too. Yeah. Okay. But the problem is there are some folks that are so addicted that that period of time is so uncomfortable that their risk for relapse is so high that the idea that you're just going to get them magically to convince that they're going to stop use immediately, it doesn't work. And I've seen so many people in a situation like that where they relapse over and over and over again. Uh, explain to people who who haven't even seen it in the movies, um, relapse when it is um, a physically addicting part of your body is very, very uncomfortable, right? Both oh, yes. for alcohol and for opioids. So the withdrawal symptoms that you will have are physical symptoms that are real. They're, they're not in your head. Um, the, the uncomfortable feeling that drives the mind to want to get rid of those physical feelings yeah. that the drug typically has been covering is very significant. And in fact, opiate withdrawal is one of the most uncomfortable addictions that you can have in, in terms of having significant symptoms that pull you right back in. And what MAT medications will do is they'll mitigate, they'll kind of take away some of those withdrawal symptoms in a way that they're not still feeding the opiate receptors that are keeping you addicted. But it is a very, very uncomfortable feeling. In fact, it's a very, it's, it's a significant time of high risk. When folks are at a point where they are committed to really trying to get free of opiates, but yet they're having that significant withdrawal set of symptoms that's kind of just, they can't get it out of their mind. They just need that, that hit again. They're at high risk for overdose. They're very high risk for overdose. And the problem is if you overdose with opiates, you, you will unfortunately potentially kill yourself. And, and, and Dr. Polo, is the so reason that that happens unique. is because they would take more to try to quell that feeling or because the body is now not used to as much in the system and would react horribly to too much opioids? It's a combination of several of those factors because, um, first of all, when you do get addicted to a drug in general, what happens is you need more and more of it to achieve the same effect. In alcohol, for example, if somebody is a not really been ever exposed to alcohol and they have one or two drinks and they feel a little bit lightheaded or they feel a little bit, uh, you know, that beginning sense of being intoxicated, which can be pleasant for some folks. If they keep drinking, it'll, there'll come a time where they don't get that feeling after two drinks. It might take five drinks before they get that feeling. Wow. And so what happens is not only do you increase your tolerance, you then reach a point where if you don't have that feeling that you've been using the substance for, now you're having discomfort for which you're push to use the substance. So, so what happens over time is not only does the substance need to be acquired or used in higher doses to get the same event, and now you're at risk for using higher doses. And by default, if you're trying to withdraw, you may overshoot. And, and you know, you, you've read the stories in the newspapers, you know, people that are found, you know, unconscious with a needle in their arm. 
they, they were clearly at that fine line edge of really wanting to get a hit. And, and the question is, was it intentional or unintentional? And sometimes we don't really know. I don't know. Wow. I just want you to also offer an observation of how um, our entire society is in some way built on this idea that when you go to a party, when you're celebrating, when you, you know, you open the drink, you light up the joint, you, especially in younger circles, it, um, drug use is not really um, seen as such a dangerous thing. And so I'd just like your perspective as a mental health practitioner about over time, what it does do to people's brains. Yeah. Um, we do know that over time, substance abuse of any substance does change the brain chemistry and can have impacts on, on some folks uh, significantly so. And part of what you're alluding to is that our culture almost supports the idea that it's socially okay and it's yep. appropriate to let loose. I myself, you know, occasionally have a glass of wine with my wife and I enjoy having a glass of wine. I, I don't enjoy drinking wine to the point where I'm falling over. You know, I would probably argue that I'm a pretty responsible drinker, but the reality is, you know, some people might look at me and say, well, Jim, you're, you're talking out of two sides of your mouth. You're <laughs> saying that alcohol is bad, but yet you're using it in the reason why I use it as a personal example is because one of the things that's very difficult is try to, to convince somebody that, that this is a black and white issue, okay? So alcohol is legal in the country. It's typical that you'll go to parties or, or activities where it is served, and, and, and sure enough, alcohol in excess will create all kinds of issues in terms of how you're cognitively thinking and overuse is, is, is very harmful. This is especially important during the holidays when we tend to get together, we want to let down, we want to let loose. So, you know, I remind myself that very often what's behind somebody that's using drugs or alcohol is they, they fall broadly into one of two categories. They're either people that are feeling something they don't want to feel, or they're not feeling something that they do want to feel, hey, I'm not excited. I don't feel good. I, I need that. If you find yourself where you're just not feeling good and you're looking for something or you're feeling terrible and you're trying to get away from something, that's when I say drugs and alcohol are not the right solution. Mm. Now that's when you need to think about counseling. I, I love but, this. I, you know, th th this just leads me to where I think a good place to end would be is let's get back to some of the advice that you use for people about how do you actually feel your feelings? How do you actually experience what it is that's happening? Exactly. And, and I think we all have to kind of find our own right balance. Um, but it goes back to something that we talked about earlier, which can be really important during this time of this pandemic. If the people around you who love you the most are concerned, mm. it's, probably something you shouldn't ignore. You probably ought to have at least a discussion about what that concern is. And you probably ought to take that first step to get an outsider to look at it to see if you might need help. Dr. Polo, it's always such a true blast to speak with you. And I always learn so much. Um, if you want further resources, especially for our regional audience on where you can go to find some online support groups and some of the assisted recovery that Dr. Polo mentions, please give us a look at Beyond Well with Sheila Hamilton. We also very much appreciate your reviews. Make it a wonderful holiday. And thank you again, Dr. Polo. We'll talk very soon. Thank you, Sheila.